What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Mile Higher Podcast, episode 187. And today is actually our last episode of 2021. Crazy. Isn't it wild? This year it flew by. Can't believe we survived. It always does, right? But it does. I know. The years just are flying by faster and I faster. I feel like as we get older, too. It's true. Time just like slips through your fingers. Yeah, it really does feel like that. But today we are covering a topic that is very interesting, very intriguing. I know people have a variety of theories when it comes to this case, and that is the mysterious murder of Jack Wheeler or John Wheeler, but he went by Jack most of the time. Yep. What's interesting about Jack Wheeler, and I think what makes this case especially interesting and very mile higher is because he was very involved with the government, both through different government contractors but he also worked under multiple presidential administrations. Mm -hmm. uh, he did a lot for veterans. He really lived a very remarkable life. So the way that his life ended is really shrouded in mystery. And mm -hmm. we really don't know exactly what happened to him. All we know is that he was found dead in a landfill. Yeah. And no one really knows much else than that, which yeah. is crazy. And honestly, it was lucky that his body was, was even, even found. found. Yeah. 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 So that's the case we're going to dive into today. Before we get into that, though, we had a few things we wanted to mention with yes. it being the end of the year. So part of uh, this break that we're taking, we're actually going to be taking a couple weeks off. Right. Before the new year. Because we're trying to get it, our shit together, to be honest, guys. <laughs> our studio <laughs> has been such a struggle. I know many of you know we've been like trying to get our new studio recording space for all three shows ready to go. And it's just been, you know, thing after thing. And I know... So many people are experiencing delays in the world and everything. So we kind of just have to roll with the punches. But we really want to have it ready to go by the time yeah. we come back. This is it. This is the last Malhar episode yeah. in this studio, which Say is kind of crazy. Because mm -hmm. our new setup will be very different looking. Yeah. A new fresh redesign yep. of everything. Although we will be keeping our wonderful neon sign. We, I love the sign. It's, but it's going to be new and improved. It is. It's going to be new it's and improved. It's not going to look the same. It's going to be a new look for us, I think. So. It is. It's going to be awesome. But we just need the time, you know, before the year starts to actually focus and just buckle down and get it done. Exactly. So that's what we're going to be doing for the first couple weeks of January before we come back. But yeah, our first episode back will be in the new setup, which will be cool. Yeah. The other thing I wanted to quickly mention, though, is that Higher Love Wellness is launching a new product, one that we've been working on for quite a while. A long time. And that is our Rocky Mountain Freeze Cooling Gel. Yes. This thing is absolutely incredible. It's a roll-on. So I'm sure you guys have seen our salve before, which is more of like a, you know, you rub it into the skin. But mm -hmm. this just has a roll-on and you just roll it over the top of your mm -hmm. skin and instantly you feel that cooling relief. This is much more similar to like an icy hot type of thing except mm -hmm. there's no heating element to it it's purely a cooling experience but what's great about it is it's jam-packed with broad spectrum cbd so 1500 milligrams but also it's got a number of other ingredients in it including arnica which is really really good for swelling bruising uh yeah. joints arthritis things like that so this is going to provide that sort of ultimate relief for all of those uh different things uh, which is really great. It also has an array of different essential oils. It smells really good. It smells so good. I'm so happy with this formula. We took a long time to develop this and get it the way that we wanted to. And also, side note, if you tried our salve originally when we first launched, it's completely different now. It's new and improved, and it's much more similar to this. Not um, as much cooling, though. A lot of people, one yeah. of their questions is, is like, is it a freeze feeling? This, this is a freeze. This is a freeze. The other is a light cooling effect mm -hmm. to it. The salve. Yep. 
this is great because you can just like roll it over all mm -hmm. over the place wherever you need it and this stuff works really good so this is actually going to be dropping the day this episode goes up which is december 27th mm -hmm. at wellness.com. And I believe it's going for $39.99. So a great deal. Tons of CBD. Plus, you can get 10% off if you use code HOMIES, that as always. That is true. So head over to HigherLoveWellness.com. Check it out. We can't wait to see your guys' feedback on it. We absolutely love it. And we think you will, too. Yes. But this episode of the podcast is brought to you by Shopify, Manscaped, Third Love, HelloFresh, and Stamps.com. Yes. Thank you to our sponsors. Well, let's go ahead and jump into the life of John Parsons Wheeler. The third. Very interesting life. Very interesting. So John Parsons Wheeler III was born on December 14, 1944 in Laredo, Texas. He was raised by his mother, Janet Conley Wheeler, and his father, John Parsons Jr. So his nickname, I believe growing up and especially when he got into the military later on, was Jack. So we're going to reference him as Jack throughout this whole thing. It's how his friends and family all called him Jack versus John but Jack was born to a big military family. His dad was an army colonel, nicknamed Big Jack as well. And one of his relatives, Joseph Wheeler, was a general with the Confederate Army and later in the U.S. Army. Five days after Jack was born, Janet got a telegram message that said her husband, who was fighting in World War II at the time, had gone missing in action. But thankfully, this turned out not to be true, and his father returned to the U.S. safely. He also had two younger siblings, a brother named Robert, and a sister named Janet. But Jack spent his high school years living at Fort Monroe, and he attended Hamden High School in Hamden, Virginia. And in 1962, his classmates voted him most likely to succeed. And boy, were they right. Because Jack was a passionate, opinionated, and highly intelligent individual. And those who knew him said that he was an exceptional person from the very start. And everyone knew that Jack would go on to do some truly remarkable things. He had the drive, the talent, and the perseverance needed to succeed. Before he graduated high school, Jack was having trouble deciding which college to go to. His mom wanted him to go to Yale, but his dad wanted him to follow in his footsteps and go to West Point Military Academy. And one day, Jack announced to the family dinner table that he had decided to go to West Point. He knew that he was a soldier in his heart, and he felt like he needed to serve his country and honor his family's legacy. During his time at West Point, Jack loved it. The school is full of rich traditions and it taught its students honor, discipline, and love for their country. And all of this fit within Jack's personality to a T. He actually graduated in 1966 and he was one of the top students in his class. After college, Jack worked as a platoon leader for a year at a military base in New Jersey. And in 1967, he decided to delay his military service by enrolling in the Harvard Business School. Shortly after he graduated in 1969, he actually got orders to serve the U.S. military in the Vietnam War. Jack wasn't sure how he felt about the U.S. government's decision to send troops to Vietnam at first, but he still wanted to help. So he served a year in a non-combat position at a military base there, and his job involved computerizing some army operations. So he was very intelligent, very tech-savvy for the times. When he came back from Vietnam, Jack wanted to build a memorial for the soldiers who lost their lives there. He rallied his classmates together, and because of Jack's leadership, they were able to build a small granite monument on the West Point campus that honored their fallen brothers. And 30 members of the class of 66 had lost their lives in the war. And Jack carried a lot of guilt and regret over his decision not to fight in a combat role. Basically like survivor's guilt. He was particularly haunted by the death of his friend Thomas 
who died after he heroically rescued two of his fellow soldiers. One of Jack's friends said that he sometimes became obsessive in his mission to honor his friend's sacrifice, but he accomplished a lot with that passion. Because after his year in Vietnam, Jack worked as a Pentagon staff officer and a senior planner at Amtrak. In 1972, he decided to go back to school again, and this time he was going to study law at Yale. And after he graduated in 1975, he worked as a law clerk and later as a lawyer at a firm in Washington, D.C. In 1974, Jack married his first wife, Episcopalian pastor named Alyssa Deportes. And the couple had two kids, John Parsons Wheeler IV and Catherine Marie Wheeler. Their son was born with a heart murmur and their daughter had a seizure after she was born. Their marriage ended up not working out and eventually Jack got a divorce from Alyssa. In 1978, he started working as a lawyer for the Securities and Exchange Commission, and he stayed in that position until 1986. The fallen soldiers in Vietnam never left Jack's mind for very long. He knew there was more he needed to do in order to honor their service. So in 1979, he found his next mission. He was reading a newspaper while on vacation in South Carolina when he came across a heartbreaking story. A veteran was trying to raise money to build a memorial for the Vietnam War. And sadly, the project had only raised a measly $144, and Jack couldn't let that happen, so he jumped into action right away. The program was in major need of Jack's passion, his perseverance, contacts, and skills, so he began serving as the chairman of the Memorial Fund, and in just three years, the memorial was finished and officially dedicated, which was really cool that he jumped in and and helped get this magnificent memorial that's still there today erected. This memorial was one of Jack's most famous accomplishments. Its design was actually very controversial when it was first being built, although today it's considered to be a beautiful place of healing where Americans remember those we lost in the war. And during Jack's time with the SEC, he also worked with the Reagan administration where he helped create the Vietnam Veterans Leadership Program. He later worked for the transition team of President George H.W. Bush where he helped create the Earth Conservation Corps. And from 2004 to 2009, Jack worked multiple different roles, including as an assistant to both the Secretary of Defense and the Secretary of the Air Force during the George W. Bush presidency. And Jack also worked as the CEO of both the Deafness Research Foundation and Mothers Against Drunk Driving. He's very, very active. This guy never stopped or slowed down ever. He was always working. And then in 2009, Jack started working as a consultant for the MITRE Corporation which is a research and development center funded by the U.S. government. And MITRE specializes in things like artificial intelligence and satellite systems for the military. Jack was an advisor in the company's cybersecurity division, where he and his colleagues worked to find ways to protect the country from cyber attacks. And all of this work is really just the beginning of Jack's long list of accomplishments. His resume is so long that it's hard to list all of the great things that he did. And what makes his work that much more impressive, though, is that he did all of this despite his struggles with bipolar one disorder, which bipolar one disorder is a mental illness that causes periods of deep, severe depression, followed by periods of intense, elevated moods known as manic episodes. And these manic episodes can cause symptoms like irritability, increased energy, racing thoughts, delusions, paranoia, and even hallucinations. Jack's bipolar disorder was usually well controlled by his medication, which he was always pretty good at taking. Still, bipolar disorder can be a very mysterious mental condition. Sometimes it could suddenly stop responding to medication the way it usually does, and it's generally a tricky disorder to always keep under control. But Jack didn't let this stop him from doing what he loved, 
His bipolar disorder sometimes made him feel intense, but Jack channeled this energy with his passions to create amazing things. And he was still the loving, goofy, intelligent, and confident man that his family knew him as. So one day, Jack ended up meeting this petite Southern woman named Catherine Kleiss at an event, and the two had an instant connection. They bonded over their shared love of ballet. Not only was Jack a handsome and charming soldier, he also appreciated the arts, and Catherine was immediately into that. And she thought the two of them made a perfect match. And in 1997, they ended up getting married. Catherine had two daughters from a previous marriage as well, Bird and Meriwether, and they loved their new stepfather. They ended up calling Jack dad, and he treated them just like they were his own kids. Jack and Catherine's marriage was never dull. Jack was always fun and goofy to be around, and he was a very loving husband to Catherine. In 2010, they celebrated 13 years of marriage. The couple also shared two homes, a condo in Harlem, New York City, and a house in Newcastle, Delaware. The two of them liked to split their time between these two homes. The Delaware house worked well with Jack's work schedule since it was close to D.C., of course, and the Manhattan condo worked best for Catherine since she ran a silk importing business out of New York. Jack really liked being at their Delaware house the best, though. The town of Newcastle was very peaceful, and it matched his kind of old-fashioned traditional personality. However, Jack was involved in a pretty bitter dispute with one of his neighbors in Newcastle. These neighbors, who had bought a property across the street from Jack, wanted to build a house that would end up sitting on a part of the historic Delaware Battery Park. This house would have been taller than all of the other houses in the neighborhood, and it would have partially blocked Jack and Catherine's view of the park and the Delaware River. This made the two of them very angry, but Jack was especially furious about the new house. Jack thought that building a house on Battery Park was a huge sign of disrespect. It was public land, so Jack believed that every part of the park should stay open to the public. Not only that, but the park was also dedicated in honor of when Delaware declared independence from Pennsylvania in 1776. It was a part of American history. So Jack ended up suing the neighbors over this house zoning, which sparked a long legal battle. At one point, he was so angry that he hinted to Catherine that he wanted to burn the house down. She didn't think he'd actually go through with this, of course. Jack was a passionate and opinionated person who really valued fairness and American patriotism. It made sense that this issue brought up a lot of strong feelings for him. It was disrespectful to so many values and beliefs that he had held close to his heart. The situation also changed his opinion on the Newcastle and Delaware government. He thought that the legal battle uncovered some corrupt practices in their government agencies, and he complained that Newcastle had become a corrupt town. Jack wanted to investigate these agencies in Delaware who had approved the construction of the Battery Park House. And at one point, he contacted a friend who was part of the hacker community and asked him for some hacking lessons. The hacker thought this was kind of a weird request, but he sent Jack a reading list for him to complete anyway. And on December 5th, Jack wrote an item in a to-do list that mentioned hacking someone involved with the construction of the house. But Jack and Catherine still had neighbors that they got along with. The two of them were good friends with their neighbors, Robert and Phoebe Dill, for example. Sometimes Jack would ask Robert to watch the house if they were going to be out of town, and the couples were pretty close with each other. One year before Christmas, the couples were having dinner together when Robert said that his grandkids had always wanted to see the big planes used by the military. And a few days later, Jack surprised the Dill's grandchildren with a Christmas trip to see them. They said that this surprise trip was just typical Jack, that he was always thoughtful, giving, and kind. So we will tell you a little bit more about the day that Jack disappeared 
after we take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. So a few days before Christmas in 2010, Robert drove Jack to the Amtrak station in Wilmington. He was headed to D.C. for work, and after that, he would go to the condo that he and his wife shared in Manhattan for the holidays. Robert dropped him off at the station, and Jack took a train to D.C. with a Christmas present for his wife along with him. After working for a few days, Jack traveled from Washington, D.C. to New York City to spend Christmas with his family at the Harlem condo. They said that Jack was in a great mood that weekend, playing with the kids, enjoying some much-needed quality time with his loved ones, and it had been a stressful few months for him. Jack was always busy with something. So Jack spent the holiday weekend at the condo, but on December 28th, he told Catherine that he needed to head back to D.C. Catherine didn't actually want Jack to leave. They usually spent the three days after Christmas at the movie theater, catching up on the movies they'd missed over the holidays and hanging out with their kids. So I wanted to mention that there is some details of just this case in general that are very questionable as far as dates go. So this case was actually covered by Unsolved Mysteries fairly recently. And when doing research for this episode, there was articles that were saying some different things regarding when Jack left for D.C., Uh, Unsolved Mysteries said that he left on the 28th for D.C. and returned to Newcastle that day. But then there's articles out there that say he left on the 26th. But Catherine actually says herself in the Unsolved Mysteries episode that Jack left the day after Christmas. But again, could have just been her misspeaking potentially uh, because the text that was actually overlaid said the 28th. And this is backed up by an article by the Washington Post that actually says that Jack took a train from New York to D.C. on the 28th and that investigators say surveillance video corroborates that he was there. There's also other articles out there that say Jack had dinner with family friends in New York on the 27th. But for the sake of the episode, we are going to use December 28th as the date that Jack actually left New York for D.C. So like we were saying, Catherine was upset that Jack was leaving early. She wanted him to stay, but he told her that he needed to go back to work. Not only that, but he told her he wasn't going to attend her cousin's upcoming wedding in Massachusetts, and this triggered a big fight between the two of them. So Jack ended up leaving New York for D.C. at 7 a.m. that day. At 1.20 p.m., Jack arrived for work at Miter's office in nearby McLean, Virginia. He only spent a couple of hours there. Since Jack was on his phone a lot, there was a clear record of what he did on the 28th. After he left for work, he sent some emails to his daughter, his stepdaughter, and he was trying to patch things up with Catherine. Then that day at 5.10 p.m., Jack posted a message on the Class of 66 West Point web forum complaining about what he saw as corruption in the NCAA, an organization that regulates college sports in the United States. Jack posted on this forum a lot, actually, and he was always very passionate on his posts. Once a moderator actually temporarily banned him in an effort to get him to cool down for a bit because he would get so heated. After leaving work, he returned to his home in Newcastle around 5.30 p.m. And some sources actually say he arrived in Delaware before 7.30 p.m. We're not exactly sure on that part. But he had most likely taken a train from D.C. back to Wilmington and then called a cab home from the station. And then later that night, a neighbor called the police to report some suspicious activity at the house under construction across the street from Jack's. The caller reported seeing a person in dark clothing and a ski mask throwing something inside of the house. And when police arrived at the scene at 11.30 p.m., they found that someone had lit smoke bombs made for pest control and thrown them inside the house. This incident caused minor damages to the wood floors in the house. Someone had also left an iPhone at the scene outside of the house. Police determined later that this phone actually belonged to Jack. 
Which I wanted to jump in there and say, I think there's some speculation as to when the phone was actually found. We don't, we don't really know. We don't know yeah. if the police found it on their initial visit to the house mm-hmm. or if it was found at a subsequent visit on the 31st. Or it's possible that they found it and then they just didn't identify it as Jack's until the first week of January. We're not really sure. The phone is definitely a big question mark as to, you know, why it was there. And, you know, we know it was Jack's eventually, but we don't know at what point they figured out it was Jack's. Yeah, there's a lot of question marks in this case. Yeah, it's kind of bizarre, honestly. Mm -hmm. So the following day on December 29th, Catherine tried to call Jack. He didn't answer the phone, though. Usually Jack is very quick about answering his phone or returning any missed calls. So Catherine started to get worried, but they had fought the day before. So she didn't think it was that weird that she didn't hear from him for the rest of the day. But now she was concerned. She'd never lost contact with Jack like this before. Then at around 8.45 a.m., Jack took a cab in Wilmington to the Hotel DuPont, a few blocks from where he was. We don't know how Jack got to Wilmington that morning or where he spent the night before. The cab driver said that Jack chatted with him along the ride and nothing seemed out of the ordinary. At 9.31 a.m., Jack sent an email over to MITRE, the company that he worked for. He told him that someone had broken into his house and stolen some things that might give them access to the building, including his MITRE ID badge, key fob, wallet, briefcase, and cell phone. But Jack never ended up reporting this break-in to the police, and he didn't even tell Catherine about it, which is very strange. Jack also ended up sending an email to his therapist. He wrote that after his argument with Catherine, he felt dazed and boxed in a corner. He didn't have his cell phone at this point, so we're not exactly sure how he sent this email or how he would have written it. And also, since he didn't have his cell phone on him, his movements became a lot harder to track. So there are many just gaps in the timeline. At 6 p.m. that day, Jack went to a Happy Harry's pharmacy near his house, and their security cameras recorded him walking into the store and heading back into the pharmacy area. Jack filled his prescriptions there pretty regularly, so the pharmacist knew who he was. But this time, the pharmacy staff noticed that something was up. Jack didn't come to the pharmacy to fill his prescriptions. Instead, he wandered around the store asking customers for a ride to Wilmington, which was six miles north of Newcastle. It's possible he might have been trying to get to his car, Because before heading to New York for Christmas, Jack had left his car in the parking garage of an Amtrak station in Wilmington. A pharmacist who had filled Jack's prescriptions before overheard one of these conversations and noticed that he seemed upset. Jack asked the pharmacist for a ride, but he said he couldn't take him and he offered to call him a cab instead. But Jack said, no thanks, and just left the store. The surveillance video shows two men walking out of the store with Jack. They just so happened to be leaving at the same time that he was although they didn't give him a ride anywhere. Police confirmed that Jack got a ride to Wilmington from a different couple, and this couple has been cleared of any involvement in this case. Law enforcement hasn't released any more specifics about this, including where the couple dropped him off exactly. At around 6.40 p.m., Jack ends up back in Wilmington. He's seen looking for his car at the Colonial Parking Garage attached to the Newcastle County Courthouse. Jack's car actually wasn't in that parking garage, though. It was in the garage near the Wilmington Amtrak station, as we just said, which was three blocks away. He'd apparently left his car there before Christmas Eve. However, his family said that this wasn't super out of the ordinary for Jack. He always had a lot of trouble with directions. Sometimes Jack would drive to work and come home in a taxi because he would just forget where he parked that day. He was constantly losing track of his car. At 6.42 p.m., Jack is spotted talking to the garage's attendant on their security cameras. This time, he looked a lot more upset than he did at the pharmacy. 
He was also only wearing one shoe, and he was holding the other one, which looked like it was damaged. His suit was wrinkled and dusty, and he didn't have a tie or overcoat on. Jack tapped on the attendant's window and told her that he wanted to warm up inside before paying his ticket. And when the attendant turned toward him, she was immediately concerned by the state he was in. He looked like he had been crying and his eyes were very red. He took a short walk around the garage before he came back to the window, and the attendant asked where his ticket was. He told her that his briefcase, which he had had earlier, also had his parking ticket in it, but it had been stolen. The attendant asked him how that happened, and he didn't answer. He just kept repeating that it was stolen, that somebody stole my briefcase, without giving any more details. In the footage, he looked upset and possibly confused. He walked with a limp, waved his hands at the attendant, and pointed a finger at her. The attendant said that she didn't smell any alcohol on him and that he wasn't slurring his speech. Jack even repeatedly told her that he wasn't drunk. We'll play a news clip here actually where the attendant actually gave an interview on her interaction with Jack. He, he kind of walked out that way to the pay station area and he, he must have got on the elevator and he walked around the garage. So like when he came back, I was talking to him, I was asking like, what kind of car do you have? Where's your ticket? He said his ticket was inside of his briefcase. I asked where was his briefcase at? He said his briefcase was stolen. He wasn't slurring. There was no blood. He wasn't staggering. He was just like kind of like shuffling along. What really strike me as being odd was that he didn't have a coat on and he had a shoe in his hand. He didn't ask me to call the police. I, I asked him if he, wanted, if he needed money or anything. He said no. He, he didn't look homeless. This conversation that the attendant had with Jack definitely made a mark on her. She was definitely freaked out by the whole thing. She actually called the parking garage's manager and told him a man who might be homeless needed help at the parking garage. When the manager got there, he saw Jack standing by the exit, looking confused and wearing both of his shoes again. He asked him if he needed help, and Jack told him that he was just trying to find his car. He explained that he lost everything after he had been robbed. The manager wanted to give him a ride around the garage so he could find his car, but Jack just kept shaking his head. The manager said that he just seemed really out of it. It's not clear who, but someone working at the garage offered to give him some money to get home. He told the worker he didn't need it because they had plenty of cash on him. And eventually, Jack left the parking garage. And what he did for the rest of the night is unknown. The next day around 8 a.m., the owner of a Subway sandwich shop in Wilmington said that Jack came in and ordered a coffee. He paid with some loose bills from his pocket. And the owner thought that Jack appeared to be homeless. Jack's whereabouts are officially unknown for about 20 hours after the incident at the parking garage. Finally, security cameras at the Nemorse building, which is an office building in Wilmington, spotted Jack walking through the basement at 3.26 p.m. Investigators said that they found evidence which led them to believe that he spent the night of the 29th there. The Nemours building is pretty big. And like a lot of high-end office buildings, it has amenities like a fitness center and lockers for employees. The building can be a bit of a maze with a lot of twisting hallways and many different entry and exit points. Surveillance cameras picked up Jack walking through the hallways and a tunnel below the building. Multiple employees did report seeing Jack in the building that same day. Some of them thought that he may have slept in a basement stairwell. They reported having strange interactions with Jack as well. Investigators don't know why Jack spent the night of the 29th and part of the day on the 30th in the building. It looked like he was trying to lay low or possibly hide from someone. An employee working on the 11th floor said that Jack walked into their office and told her that he was a fellow federal employee 
and asked for a ride to Philadelphia. The employee asked what agency Jack was with, but he didn't give her an answer and he left the office. At some point, Jack entered a law office in the building and requested to speak to one of their managing partners. He also asked them for train fare, even though investigators later found out that he had a decent amount of money with him. Before the receptionist could come back with a lawyer, though, he had already left the office. So what's interesting about this is that there's articles out there that talk about how Jack Wheeler's family's lawyer's last name was Connolly and that he worked in the Nemours building. The firm that Jack walked into was Connolly, Bove Lodge, and Hutch. And although the lawyer's names are similar, obviously, the Wheeler's lawyer did not work for the law firm Jack was at, which is probably why Jack got confused. Ultimately, though, we're not entirely sure why Jack came to the Nemours building. There's some sources that say that maybe at one point several years ago, he had an appointment there and that maybe the family's lawyer did work there at one point, but we just don't really know. It seems like Jack just got really confused, which is why he sort of ended up there. But what was he going to that building for to see a lawyer uh, at this point in time? It doesn't really make sense. But security footage showed Jack leaving the Moore's building at 8.39 p.m. And this time he was wearing a black hoodie. Jack hadn't brought any extra clothing items with him. And oddly enough, he didn't leave anything behind either. So investigators think that he probably took the hoodie from one of the employee's lockers. Because again, he was just like roaming the hallways going in and out of different places. He probably just found the hoodie. At 8.41 p.m., cameras at the Hotel DuPont captured Jack walking past the hotel. And after he passed the front entrance, he pulled the hood over his head and tightened it. Then he walked out of view of the cameras toward Rodney Square and the high crime East Side Street beyond it. And this was the last known footage of Jack. And after this, he was never seen alive again. A witness told police that they actually saw Jack getting a cab with a stranger at around 11 p.m. that night. They also said that he got in the cab after he heard that it was going to Newark, a town in Delaware. The cab driver and the passenger have never been identified and the police haven't fully corroborated this sighting. But the next day on December 31st, a landfill worker was just doing their job, you know, moving trash around in the landfill when they discovered a body. And this body was none other than Jack Wheeler's body. And it was found in the Cherry Island landfill in Wilmington, Delaware. His body had already been there for a few hours before it was found at 9.56 a.m. Jack was found wearing black pants, his shoes, a dark sweatshirt, a white button-down long-sleeve shirt, and his West Point class of 66 ring. He also had a lot of cash on him. We don't know how much exactly, but the police said it was a significant amount of money. Jack's body also had no obvious signs of injury, like a gunshot wound or a stab wound or any blood on him. Police identified his body that same day. We're not 100% sure, but it's also possible that they were able to identify him so quickly because he had his wallet on him, which is likely where he had all of his cash stored. But again, we can't verify this. But when Jack was found in the landfill, this was huge news. This actually made national news. All the major mainstream media outlets were all talking about it. I mean, here's this prestigious, very successful man who was just found dead in a landfill. I mean, it was a huge, huge story. And when the lead detective on the case found out that Jack had a house in Newcastle, he called the police department there and he was surprised to learn that the police had already been sent to his house before his body was discovered because they were actually responding to a potential burglary there. Earlier that day, Robert had been just outside chatting with a neighbor when he noticed that a window on the back of the second floor of Jack's house had been left open. And Robert figured that Jack had just accidentally left the window open before he left. 
So he just decided to be a good neighbor and go over there and close it for him. And he took the spare key Jack had given him and actually entered the house, which I mean, he didn't need to because the door was open. But the storm door to the house was closed, but the main part of the door had been left halfway open. And when Robert walked into the kitchen, he was shocked to see that someone had left behind a very chaotic looking mess. There is stuff absolutely everywhere. What's also bizarre is that a tall tree that usually sat in the bay window had been tipped over and laid on the floor. The spice drawer had also been nearly emptied out completely, and some of the spice bottles had been dumped out all over the floor and the table, and there were shards from broken plates scattered on the floor, and in the sink, there was an open copy of the long gray line, a coffee mug, an American flag, and a broken plate. There was also white powder all over the floor. Richard saw a can of powdered cleaner called Comet, on the counter so he figured that this was what the powder was but someone had also left a comet covered footprint on the floor in front of the sink as well jack had a ceremonial sword and shield from his time at west point and these were some of his most prized possessions but again weirdly both of these items sat on the floor covered in comet which is very very weird there's also a report from 2011 that states that some of the floorboards were missing and there was yellow caution tape in the kitchen However, neither the tape or the missing floorboards are in the evidence photos, so it's likely that the police removed the floorboards and the caution tape, which was placed by police after the investigation began, and they were probably trying to investigate the footprint, and they likely determined the footprint to be Jack's because they haven't released anything else about this, but just something to note. The scene in the kitchen made Richard super concerned, though. He worried that someone had broken into the house through the side door, but he didn't notice anything significant like a TV or anything else missing from the home. I mean, if you're going to break in, why wouldn't you steal his ceremonial sword and shield? I mean, those are pretty, pretty nice items that you could probably sell for a decent amount of money at a pawn shop. So if it truly was a burglary, why weren't those items taken as well? Robert called his wife over to the house to try and help him make sense of the scene. He then called Jack and Catherine, but when they didn't answer, he just decided to call the police. The cops were notified that Jack's body had been discovered just moments later, which is kind of bizarre. So when the Newcastle Police Department arrived at Jack's house, they were even more confused to see that the house across the street had already been the site of a police investigation. It was the investigation into the smoke bomb incident that occurred on the 28th. Investigators had determined that the phone left outside of the neighbor's house belonged to Jack. And not only that, they found receipts from a store where Jack had purchased a ski mask and dark clothing. Mm. So it's pretty clear it was him. The police also discovered that nothing had been stolen from Jack's house. All of these simultaneous discoveries just baffled the investigators. And since Jack had previously worked for the Pentagon and with three different presidential administrations, the local police brought in the FBI to help work on this case. Even the ATF, the DEA, and multiple other government agencies were called in to work on Jack's murder. The medical examiner performed an autopsy on Jack the same day that his body was found. The report stated that some of Jack's injuries included broken ribs, multiple cuts, swollen lips, a punctured lung, and bruises all over his face, head, and body. He looked like he had been beaten pretty badly. His death was classified as a homicide due to blunt force trauma. The medical examiner discovered that Jack also had suffered a heart attack. There's not a lot of detail on this that's been made public, and Catherine said that the police went back and forth with her, saying that he died from a heart attack and then telling her that he didn't before the official cause of death was released. And it was hard for investigators to collect evidence from the landfill because it was obviously filled with a lot of random trash. They didn't find any evidence other than Jack's body. 
and whatever he had on him at the time. At first, investigators thought that someone had placed Jack in the landfill after he died. They worked off this assumption because they realized that the garbage truck took Jack's body to the landfill after he somehow ended up in the dumpster. After investigators combed through all the trash, they determined that the garbage truck that Jack had been in collected trash from the town of Newark, Delaware. Newark is about 14 miles southwest of the Cherry Island landfill, and it's also about 14 miles away from Jack's last known location in Wilmington. Plus, Jack had no known connections to the Newark area, so it's totally random, and he was last seen walking in the opposite direction. At that point, the case was handed over to the Newark police, who were able to figure out what truck Jack had been in. They then used that information to try and determine which dumpster on the route Jack may have been left in. So they ended up swabbing the 10 dumpsters along the route and compared samples with Jack's DNA. And three days after his body was found, police confirmed that one of the dumpster swabs was a partial DNA match for Jack. The exact dumpster that Jack was in, though, is a detail that police have not made public. So at this point, Catherine wasn't aware that Jack was dead. She hadn't talked to Jack since he left New York, and she assumed that he was still upset, but she thought that he'd come to her cousin's wedding on New Year's Eve anyway. And when he didn't show up, she became very concerned. Then on January 2nd, 2011, she got the horrible news herself. Jack's daughter, Kate, had called her and said that she needed to come over to the condo to talk. And when Kate got to Catherine's place, she told her that Jack was dead. And Catherine could not believe what she was hearing. She just didn't think a world could exist without Jack. Then the next day she said, I need, she called and said, I have to come over. She said, I have to t tell you something about Jack. She said, he's dead. <laughs> you know, you don't really believe it. You don't, your brain, your brain shuts down. So you do, oh, you don't believe it. So the two went to the police station to claim his body. He was covered in a white sheet and his face looked like someone had badly beaten it up. Catherine said that she believes that Jack may have been suffering from a manic episode in the days leading up to his death. And she also believes that Jack probably was the one who set off smoke bombs in the neighbor's house. And a manic episode could definitely explain that crazy scene in Jack's kitchen. Jack was already decently upset on the 28th. And when he returned to Newcastle, his dispute with the neighbors may have set him off enough to trigger a full-blown manic episode. At that point, Jack may have lost it, and in his manic and distressed state, he may have began destroying the kitchen. And it seems before or likely after this incident, he decided to set off the smoke bombs in the neighbor's house. Then, that next day, now that his phone was missing, Jack may have been confused about the scene in the kitchen, or he was possibly trying to cover up his tracks, which would explain the email that he sent to Miter about the break-in. But Catherine also said that she didn't agree with the people who thought that Jack looked disoriented on the security footage tapes. She said he seemed like he was distressed, though, but not disoriented. I read that he was um, disoriented and that sort of thing, but he wasn't. Catherine was also pretty angry with the police. She said that the family found out about the cause of death from the news at the same time that the rest of the public found out, which is always devastating when this happens. The Delaware State Medical Examiner publicly released Jack's cause of death on January 28, 2011. They reported that he died due to blunt force trauma and classified his death as a homicide. Police also talked to another one of Jack's neighbors in the investigation. He told them that he'd only met Jack briefly. However, he'd heard something really odd in the days leading up to when Jack passed away. He said that a TV inside the house was constantly blaring at full volume all hours of the day. 
Also, investigators never found Jack's briefcase, and Catherine says that the police have not returned his wallet to her. They likely kept it as evidence. So we're going to get into some of the theories and the rest of the information available as soon as we get back from our last break. Again. So on April 29, 2011, Jack was buried in Arlington National Cemetery with full military honors. Catherine ended up taking a break from the silk importing business she started so she could focus on the case and spent most of her time trying to solve Jack's murder. In May of 2011, Catherine's brother Henry and his wife filed a lawsuit against Catherine, Jack, and Catherine's sister Ellen. They claimed that Jack had used his cyber warfare knowledge to hack their email accounts and harass them. A family feud had started between the siblings when Henry cut his sisters off from investing in the medical device businesses he was involved in. The couple claimed that Jack hacked them to try and get them to change their minds. Catherine and Ellen stated through their lawyers that Jack didn't have anywhere near the high level of computer experience needed to hack anyone. They said he worked with the defense community only as a policy advisor and not some sort of high-tech hacker. In fact, they said his experience with computers was actually pretty limited. The lawsuit ended up being settled in late 2011, and both sides paid each other's lawyer fees without either of them taking any legal liability. Catherine has stated that she and her family are very unhappy with how the police have handled Jack's case. She said they treated her and her family like criminals rather than a grieving family from the very start of their case. Police confiscated a lot in their investigation, like financial records, credit cards, and Jack's computer. Their credit cards even racked up $3,000 worth of mysterious charges after they were taken by police, like two plane tickets for a flight from New York to Madrid. Catherine felt like the police had left her and her family in the dark about many important parts of the case, and the family is still very, very hungry and searching for answers, as well as offering a large cash reward for anyone that can give them information that will solve the mystery of Jack's death. But Jack's life and legacy has left a permanent mark on the lives of countless people, His loved ones remember him as a man who is devoted to his country and lived to serve others. And the family hopes that Jack's killer will finally be brought to justice one day. And as of 2021, the murder of Jack Wheeler has not been solved. But that leads us to some different theories as to what may have happened to Jack. Because there's a lot of them, but we're going to cover sort of the three main ones that people have. So the first theory is the robbery theory. At first... Investigators wondered if somebody had mugged and killed Jack before placing his body in a dumpster. Parts of Wilmington can actually be pretty dangerous, and the area that Jack was last seen walking towards was considered to be pretty unsafe, especially after dark. It's possible that Jack just ran into random trouble there. However, there are many different factors in the case that make the robbery and murder theory pretty unlikely. First of all, when Jack was found, he was still wearing a Rolex watch and his West Point class ring which as we know, Rolexes can cost tens of thousands of dollars and a mugger would have obviously checked for a watch, jewelry, his wallet and things like that and likely would have taken that off of Jack in order to resell it for potentially thousands of dollars. But probably the most damning piece of evidence that Jack wasn't robbed was the fact that he was found with a lot of money on him. And while we don't know exactly how much he had, investigators did say it was a pretty significant amount of money. Considering police found all of these things on Jack, it seems highly unlikely that he was robbed. Also, it would have taken a decent amount of time and strength for the mugger to beat Jack to death and then haul his body into the dumpster. Why take that big of a risk and then not even bother to check to see if Jack had anything of value on him? Like, why randomly mug him and just dump him in a dumpster without taking anything off him? And it makes no sense right. at all. Plus, let's remember that the autopsy report, there was no gunshot wound, there was mm-hmm. no stab wounds. So 
if somebody just literally beat him to death, again, that would have taken way too long. And there would have been more signs of that in the autopsy report. Not only that, but people who mug others rarely move their victims to a different location after they kill them. They often kill them, take their stuff and run. So moving the body would make it a lot harder and a lot more likely for a mugger to get caught if you consider having to drag a, f- yeah. I mean, he was a big man. So mm-hmm. to drag him and pull him into one of the dumpsters. Mm-hmm. And again, like some of the dumpsters, they have openings on the side so that you can easily access Little it. doors. Yeah, exactly. But even then you'd still have to, you know, you'd, it'd take a while to squeeze him through one of those mm-hmm. little openings. Mm-hmm. And some of them are up so high, you couldn't even do it at all. So that really doesn't make sense. It's also possible Jack made it to Newark and was attacked and killed there. But still, the fact that he had all those very expensive things on him makes it hard to believe someone robbed him. It's possible, though, that if he was mugged, that it triggered a fatal heart attack for Jack. And after this, maybe the attacker panicked and quickly placed him in a dumpster before fleeing the scene, which I could maybe see happening. But then again, nothing was taken off him, it seems. One of the most popular theories is that Jack's death was actually not a murder. It was actually just a tragic accident. According to this theory, Jack would have crawled into the dumpster for shelter on the 30th, fell asleep, and died in the truck's trash compactor, crushed by the dumpster's contents, which is just horrible to think about, but it's a very real possibility. Some garbage truck drivers said that it's not uncommon for people to sleep in dumpsters during the winter months. Sometimes, you know, homeless people will enter the dumpsters through those small little side doors we just talked about, or just hop over the top for a warm place to sleep. While the sanitation workers start to lift the dumpsters, anyone inside of them will usually start yelling or jump out through the side door. Most of the time, the sanitation workers are able to hear them and stop the truck so they can get out. Tragically, though, sometimes they don't hear them, and many people have died this way. December 30th was a dark winter night, and Jack was probably very cold, very scared, and very lost. It's possible that he felt like he needed to hide from someone or get warm and sleep a little bit, so he climbed into a nearby dumpster. My one issue with the whole dumpster theory is he had money on him. Why didn't he just go spend the night in a motel or something? Well, that's the thing is if you're having any type of mental break, your thinking doesn't always make the most True. logical sense. Or you're not capable of talking to people in a, in a yeah. way that it makes sense. There or could have been many reasons why he chose not to. True. You know, Or he, maybe he was hallucinating and thought somebody was after him or something like that. So he's trying to hide. It's possible. Or maybe he got into the dumpster to hide and was planning to get out. But then he suffered that heart attack mm-hmm. and actually died in there before he could get out. That's possible too. Or that, he started having the the heart attack and laid down in there. But that seems weird. Yeah, like I don't know. The seems whole unlike thing is him so, at all. So strange. The whole thing seems unlike him. That's why it's so hard to understand. Yeah. But again, Jack may have been suffering from a significant mental health crisis, likely a manic episode or a psychotic break, and this would explain his strange behavior in the days leading up to his death, as well as a decision to climb into the dumpster. If you believe this theory. People who believe the accidental death theory think that Jack didn't wake up when the dumpster was being emptied or the sanitation worker didn't hear him yelling because that does happen and that he died after the truck's trash compactor crushed his body. He also could have been injured by moving trash and his fall from the dumpster into the truck, which would explain some of the autopsy report. But Jack's family does not believe that Jack died accidentally. They said that Jack choosing to sleep in a dumpster would have been completely out of character for him. They also point to the autopsy report, which showed that he had injuries consistent with a homicide. 
but again the the autopsy report said blunt force trauma and if you right. go through a a whole you know dumpster into a truck into the landfill i mean you're likely going to suffer some sort of blunt body. force trauma or yeah. another possibility is because if you go back to the footage and you go back to you know the images that we had of him he did look distressed he looked like he had a shoe off at one point he's limping around it almost seemed that maybe at one point somebody tried to mug him potentially or maybe he fell as he was like roaming around. I mean, he might have suffered some sort of injury to himself prior to ever even going into a dumpster. If he even, you know, we know he got into the dumpster, I guess, from that partial DNA. But yeah. again, I guess we don't know for sure if he went from that dumpster to the landfill. That's what's so hard is so much information is just missing. There's a huge gap of time where yeah. we just have no idea what was going on with him. It's important to note that Jack's autopsy was done the day that his body was found. The medical examiner may not have been told that there was a possibility that Jack slept in the dumpster before the autopsy was actually performed. Mm. In fact, the medical examiner may have been working off the assumption that Jack was placed in the landfill and didn't know that he had been in the dumpster after all. See, to me, that makes a ton of sense. Yeah. That Because it seemed like early on, the first thing they thought was that Jack was murdered and dropped into a landfill but it's like first of all how often do you hear about bodies being found in landfills well probably not that often and usually when that happens it's because they were they were dropped off there right. by somebody and immediately you go to well how do you pull that off without anybody mm -hmm. seeing you and landfills are closed and fenced off and everything so it'd be very difficult to i believe unless it was an inside job with the workers there to move a body into a landfill mm -hmm. without being seen exactly so it seems like at first they were like oh this had to be murder you know hitman or something like that yeah. that dropped him there but it's like it seems very unlikely that that's mm -hmm. what happened but yeah. then again what do i know yeah. right what do i know about just the people theory. everyone seems to have a different opinion on this one but to note, the medical examiner does have the option to change anything to redo the report after it was released if they thought it was necessary but this never happened so we have to assume that the medical examiner is firm in their conclusion that jack was murdered which is interesting and i know as a family you would definitely hang on to that sure and, you know you wouldn't be able to let that go until you were told otherwise but as we know from the world of true crime Oftentimes, medical examiners don't like to go back on their initial findings and their reports That's because it looks bad on them. It looks like they didn't know what they're doing the yeah. first go around and people lose trust in their medical examiners when mistakes are made, even if they weren't presented the information, all of it in the first place. So That's I would true. just keep that in mind with, mm -hmm. with that sort of point because yeah. there's ego involved a lot of times. Mm -hmm. It's It's true. But just to note again, Jack's family does not think that he decided to just sleep in the dumpster. They don't think that's something that he would have done. And they also want to note that while it might be common knowledge for people who are experiencing homelessness to know that there are these little side doors on the side of the dumpsters that they can crawl in, it doesn't seem likely that that's something that Jack would have known. And that kind of leads us to the final theory we're going to cover. And this is pretty much the main theory that i believe most of jack's family believes and i think just generally most of the public believes that this was some sort of hit job or a murder for hire plot uh in order to have jack killed investigators have tried to find out if jack had any enemies from his past that might have wanted him dead the dispute with the neighbors comes to mind pretty quickly but police don't think the property's owners had anything to do with his death the legal battle was not friendly but these neighbors didn't want him dead and it seems pretty unlikely that they would have killed him over a zoning lawsuit 
that didn't look like it was going Jack's way anyway. So it'd be like, why would they risk all of that to kill Jack when it was already going in their favor? It doesn't make sense. But still, Jack did want to investigate people in the Delaware government over the housing dispute, and he even went as far as trying to learn how to hack them. Catherine wondered if he ended up spooking or pissing someone off there enough that they'd want to do something to him. Also, you have to consider Jack's previous work in politics. I mean, he worked in the Pentagon under presidential administrations. Who knows what people he was in touch with at any point in his career. So it's possible that a murder for hire plot specifically targeted him. They think that Jack might have known too much about something he wasn't supposed to, and there might have been a person or a group of people that wanted him gone. There are lots of conspiracy theorists online who think that Jack was taken out by people who were threatened by something that he knew or he was planning on exposing. The fact that Jack looked like he was on the run from something, or rather someone, also points many people in the direction of the murder for hire theory, which to me, I'm like, it does seem like there are moments where Jack seems to be hiding. He's kind of peeking around corners in the surveillance footage. But at the same time, I feel like that would be a lot more believable if, you know, he was not, you know, he didn't have these mental conditions that could be affecting the reality that he's experiencing. I mean, he could have been a full blown manic episode hallucinating for all we know. It's also possible that the person or people that might have been trying to murder him might have followed him around before beating Jack to death and then dumping his body into a dumpster. If someone did murder him for one of these reasons, it's clear that they placed him in a dumpster because they knew that would be taken to the landfill and likely his body would never be found. And this also might explain why he was found with expensive belongings on him, as the killers might not have wanted to deal with having that kind of incriminating evidence on their hands, but yet his briefcase was gone. So it seems like whatever happened to that... Uh, would already be incriminating evidence for somebody. Yeah. So it's like, why the briefcase? Mm. The killers might have been paid off by some high status people who could afford to pay for a hit on Jack that didn't leave any evidence connecting them back to the murder. I mean, people threw around mafia or the mob. I mean, there's a lot of things that were thrown around as to who might have killed Jack. Catherine herself has said that Jack made plenty of enemies in the defense community, but none that she thought would have killed him. There are also a lot of theories about who might have wanted Jack dead and why. Some people have speculated that he was killed by Chinese officials who wanted secrets about American cyber warfare or was even poisoned by Russians. And again, these are a lot of theories that are just random people on Reddit speculating. This is no Mm -hmm. evidence to back this up. But what's one interesting theory that I still kind of consider as a possibility is the fact that Jack worked at the MITRE Corporation, which might have made him a target considering the company works with the U.S. military. So far, though, police haven't found any evidence that connects Jack's death to these theories. But again, apparently his MITRE badge was inside of the briefcase that was stolen. And he was really freaked out that his briefcase was gone. That really worried him because he brought that everywhere. Well, probably because he had important information in there. Yeah. Who knows what was in there? Yeah. But I just don't think where I have trouble with this is it doesn't explain any of his other actions or his behavior leading up to his death. Right. One interesting theory is that the U.S. government had Jack killed to stop him from blowing the whistle about supposed poison gas testing that killed a lot of blackbirds in Arkansas, and this testing allegedly occurred right before Jack's death. Jack actually did have some experience advising the Reagan administration on the advantages and disadvantages of using biological and chemical weapons, and Jack was strongly against their use. There's not really any reputable evidence that connects Jack's death to the bird theory. Still, some theorists have claimed that Jack found out about the testing and bird deaths and threatened to expose the government and was then subsequently killed over it. 
It's also a point of debate online whether or not Jack actually had a lot of access to sensitive or confidential information that would have made mm-hmm. him a target. We can yeah. only guess, though. You know, yeah. I I think that this idea that Jack was this hacker, like, mm-hmm. I don't think that's the case. The guy was <laughs> carrying a briefcase using a BlackBerry for most of his life. I don't think yeah. he was this technologically advanced hacker dude that all these people <laughs> thought he was. It's possible, but yeah, I agree with you. I think it's unlikely. I go back to just the whole when you go from start to finish especially if if it all started at his house and smoke bombing the neighbor's house i mean it seems pretty clear that was him that yeah. tried to to basically burn down the neighbor's house mm-hmm. and it seems to me that he was just having a full-blown manic episode i mean we also know that he was fighting with catherine when he left christmas and yeah. they were having yeah. a major disagreement it was very you know a lot of contention happening there yeah and it seemed like that wasn't very normal for them they didn't often have these disagreements and he wouldn't just, you know, ghost her for days. It seemed something was going on with him internally. Yeah. And like it could be anything that triggered it, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's triggers to these sort of episodes. And for all we know, it could have started with that fight with Catherine at, you know, Christmas. And then from there, it just, yeah, or something before something we don't even know about. And it sort of just was like a domino effect. And he just went into this full blown kind of like, out of his right mind he's like i'm gonna burn the neighbor's house down i'm gonna go i'm gonna go here i'm gonna go talk to the lawyers i mean who knows what he was trying to go see his lawyer for i don't know it's hard to say i feel like with this case especially there's just not enough information we're missing so much to really definitively say i 100 think this is what happened however i am definitely leaning towards this being a tragic accident yeah, I mean, unfortunately, it, the, uh, that's where the evidence points. I think. I yeah. think the evidence points the physical evidence, unless the we circumstantial just evidence aren't getting the full picture. Right. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that is just not public, and right. you know, we don't know for sure what the yeah. police found on the scene. And, there could be a lot more, especially because he was an official. So. Yeah, I mean, just the fact. I'm like, what was he doing in his house? Why was he trying to? Mm-hmm. It seems like he was trying to set up this whole like crime. Mm-hmm. That like somebody broke into his house and then went and smoke bombed the, the neighbor. What would thinking be behind that? Even like with the comet, that's not a way to set it up. Like someone broke into your yeah. house. That's the thing you think to do is throw comet all around. I mean, it's weird. And then if somebody it broke into your house, up. why didn't they steal anything? Who breaks into somebody's house and doesn't take a thing? And the fact that he was still wearing his ring when they found him, that's incredibly strange. If he was burglarized, they would have took his the ring. Burg- I don't think he was robbed. I don't mm-hmm. even think he, I don't think he would necessarily met or was beat up by anybody. I and- don't either. I mean, that just doesn't happen that often where somebody's beat up and then thrown into a dumpster. And it doesn't and, explain any of the other strange circumstances no. leading up to this. You know, no. if he was just doing all this and then happened to get mugged, that, I mean, it doesn't, doesn't really add up. But again, there could be things that we're missing here. Right. So it's, it's hard. I think he just was like full-blown manic episode. He walked, you know, that last footage we see him walking past the hotel in the opposite direction. Uh, towards a bad part of town i think he yeah eventually started walking he's like i'm you know cold i don't know where i'm at i don't know where to go so he just kind of panicked and jumped into a dumpster maybe. and or maybe he started having a heart attack and he's like i need to lay down somewhere climbed into a dumpster <sighs> and then weird I don't and know. then died and then they picked him up and i don't know none of it makes because it's honestly. like here's the thing and this was one thing that the the trash people brought up is that normally if somebody's sleeping in a dumpster when they start yeah Beep, beep, yeah, beep, gonna, and lifting the dumpster, right. they're gonna be like, "Whoa, whoa I'm in but here!" But they also said that sometimes they don't hear people, and they unfortunately do crush people all the time. But we definitely want to hear your opinions on this one. I know you guys will have a lot, so let us know your thoughts in the comments. 
And yeah, that's going to be it for our last episode of the year of 2021. Pretty crazy. But we will be back in 2022 and we have a lot of good content and really cool things planned. Hopefully more guests. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, that'd be great. And just our new studio. It's going to be awesome. We're really excited for that. So thank you guys for all of your support this last year. It means the world to us. Can't believe we're going into another year of mile higher. It's crazy. <laughs> I don't even know what year this is that we're. I don't in. either. Fourth I year? was just trying to think of that. I think we're going year into four? our. I don't know. I think it is year four. I'm pretty sure. Time is just flying. But anyway, you guys, thank you so much for your support always, and happy holidays yes. and happy new year. Yes, we happy will new see year. you guys in January. We will. But until then, keep on taking your mind a mile higher. Oh.